The following resource is from Christ Community Church. For more information, please visit lovinglord.org. Heavenly Father, as we have gathered here in this Christmas Day 2022 to celebrate and to remember your Son, our Lord and Savior, we praise you for sending such a miraculous gift 2,000 years ago. This morning, Father, as we gather with our brothers and sisters in spirit, the millions who have been saved by grace through faith in your Son and are worshiping this day throughout the world, we ask that you would bless us this morning, this Christmas day, with a greater faith, with a greater hope, and with a deeper desire for righteousness. I pray, Lord, that you would, in light of the life, death, and resurrection of Christ, make us bold in our faith to live as you have called us to live, to live as you have equipped us to live in your Spirit. Lives not spent building our kingdoms here on earth, but serving you, our King, until you come again in glory. For all our family and friends, Lord, this day that do not know you as the risen Savior, I ask that you would make us bold to tell them, to tell them in love so they too can celebrate Christmas rightly. No longer an enemy of yours, but forgiven, reconciled, pardoned of all their sins and granted access into the heavenly throne room with the saints throughout the ages. Father, I pray you would bless every true church gathering here in the South Bay this morning, that you would encourage many, that you would save many through the faithful proclamation of the gospel. And as we approach your word here in Hebrews chapter 2, seeing the necessity of Christ coming in the flesh, that he might live a sinless life and die a sinner's death, so that we too might live forever. I pray we would find great encouragement, a desire to be holy, and a great peace that has come to us in Christ. Father, I pray that you would be glorified this morning as we do in fact worship you in spirit and truth. I pray this time would be honoring to you. I ask these things in Christ's holy name. Amen. If you have your Bibles, open up to Hebrews chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible and you'd like one, raise your hand and I'll have someone bring it to you. You say, Hebrews chapter 2, Pastor, why why aren't you in Luke? Why aren't you in Matthew? Why aren't you doing a traditional... Well, if you've been here long enough, I'm, I'm really, I really don't do traditional Christmas passages. Um, so forgive me, Brandon was harassing me about that this past week. <laughs> Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 through 18 is actually one of my favorite Christmas passages uh, because it, it deals with the necessity of the incarnation as it relates to the crucifixion and, uh, and forgiving of sins. And so it's, I think, a particularly special passage that I hope you find special this morning as well. So Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 through 18. Let me read it.
Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject, subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. One of the greatest stumbling blocks to the gospel of Jesus Christ and the Christian faith for centuries has been the teaching that God in fact became a man. And yet, here we are this morning, along with millions of brothers and sisters throughout the world, not only recognizing but celebrating the incarnation of Jesus Christ. The true statement that He, in fact, became a man, the Son of God became a man. We believe this because the Bible clearly teaches it, that the Son of God came down from heaven, He was born of the Virgin Mary, and He became truly, truly man and yet never gave up his divinity. It is known as the doctrine of the hypostatic union, and that's a fancy way of saying there were two natures in Jesus. He was truly man and truly God simultaneously and is still so today. He is the God-man. The church struggled with this so much, it wasn't until Chalcedon in 451 that this became the official doctrine of the church. Jesus Christ, the incarnate Son of God, truly man and truly God. Now in the book of Hebrews, the author is trying to establish the superiority of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And he's doing that because he's writing to Jewish Christians who were turning away from their hope in Christ. They were turning back, they were turning back to the law and back to rituals and intermediaries that had no power to save. And so in chapter 1, if you remember our study a few years ago, he elevates Jesus Christ to being the Son of God, the creator of the universe. The author actually says this in chapter 1, verse 3, that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature who upholds the universe by the word of his power in that he is fully, truly God. And then we get to chapter 2, and that's where we find our passage today. And he continues to reveal Jesus, but this time he reveals Jesus as the founder, listen closely, of our salvation. He's not just the Son of God. He's the one who came down to save sinful man. In other words, he became a man, as we see from this passage, to overcome the power of the devil, of sin and death itself, and to grant us, sinners saved by grace, access back into the throne room as we saw last week, that we might worship God both now and forever. The question many have asked throughout the centuries, and I think it's a really good question, is why this way? Why this way? Why, why did God choose to save man like this? In other words, was the incarnation, was it necessary to save sinful man? Or did God just choose this as the best means of the options he had before him? The Puritan Francis Turretin, he rightly said this, listen. He said, who can believe that the Father would have wished to send down from heaven his most beloved Son unnecessarily to put on flesh and expose him to a thousand trials 
and at last to meet an excruciating death for us, if not necessary. I agree. Our passage reveals, I think, quite clearly that it was necessary for the Son of God to become a man if one soul was to be saved. And this passage gives us two distinct reasons. Number one, to destroy the power of the devil, sin, and death forever. And number two, to make a way for us back into the presence of a holy, holy, holy God. My beloved, I don't know what you asked for for Christmas this year. I guarantee you this, though. The gift of the incarnation of God the Father sending God the Son to save sinful man is infinitely better than anything on your list. And you probably have some pretty good things on that list. It is the gift of freedom. Freedom from sin. Freedom from death. Freedom from the fear of death. Those are good gifts. It is the gift of an all-access pass. Backstage into the throne room, to be with the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and the myriad of angels, and the saints victorious forever and ever. Did you ask for that this Christmas? Did you say, I want freedom from fear and death? I want all the blessings of heaven? If you didn't, then put it on your list right now, because that's what God is offering us here in Hebrews chapter 2. I'd like for us to see just two things from this. How the Son of God became a man to be a gift to us. And in that gift that we might have power over death, number one, and number two, that we might have a way of eternal life. He became a man to give us power over death and he became a man to set that road that we might walk it all the way into the heavenly realm. The theme of the sermon is this, Jesus' incarnation was necessary for man's liberation. Jesus' incarnation was absolutely necessary for man's liberation, lest we stay bound forever and ever. Do I have your attention? Number one, the power over death. Look at verse 14. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he, speaking of Christ, he himself likewise partook, uh, partook of the same things, that through death, that's his own death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. And so descendants, as descendants of Adam, we share in flesh and blood. In the New Testament, that phrase means human nature. It means being human. And so here the author of Hebrews tells us that Jesus Christ did what? He took on flesh and blood. He became truly and fully human. In other words, while he remained truly and fully God, he became truly and fully man. And he did it, we're told, to look at verse 16, that he might help us. Verse 16, for surely, the author writes, it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. In other words, he became a man, he took on flesh and blood, that he might help all those who would be saved by grace through faith. Now another question you might be asking is, how does he then do that? How does he help us as a man. And I think a secondary question which you should ask is, did he have to become a man to help us? I mean, wouldn't he have been better off staying as the son of God, seated upon the throne, not bound by flesh and blood, not bound by space and time? Couldn't he have been a better help to us there in our sin? I think that's a a legitimate question according to the Bible and according to our passage. The answer is no, that he was more help coming in flesh and blood. So our passage reveals first 
that it was necessary for him to become a man in order to destroy the power and the fear of death. Look at verse 14 again, the latter part. He himself likewise, speaking of Christ, partook of the same things, that's flesh and blood, his human nature, that through death, that's his own death, that's the death on the cross, he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. So Jesus had to become a man in order to do some work, the work of destruction. Now we usually don't talk about that at Christmas time, and yet we want the things he's going to destroy, we want him to destroy. He came as a man and he destroyed, we'll see Satan's sin and death by dying himself. So he could take power out of the hands of the devil. Now I know that you're saying, well, another, we're a Christmas sermon, you're talking about the devil here. It's not me, it's, it's the text. Two more questions come to mind. If God is sovereign over life and death, then in what sense does the devil possess power over death in verse 17? Isn't that God's reign? That's a good question. And the second question, if God is the creator of all that is seen and unseen, why not just destroy the devil from heaven? Why send Christ as a man to die to destroy the devil? Certainly God could have snapped his fingers, spoken a word, and no more Satan, right? Certainly. So in what sense did the devil have power over death? Did he, past tense, no longer? If you know your biblical theology, then you remember from Genesis chapter 3, it was Satan who came into the garden and did what? He deceived Adam and Eve. And he deceived them by lying to them about death itself. You remember, he slithered his way into their presence. Genesis chapter 3, verse 1, he said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? He knows the answer. He knows the answer. Eve responded, Genesis 3, 3, God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. And Satan responded, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So the father of lies lied about death, and in so doing, what did he do? He ensnared mankind. He trapped mankind in this lie and in so doing put us to death. That's why Jesus identifies Satan in John chapter 8 verse 44 as the murderer, a murderer from the beginning. And we'll see in a couple weeks, Revelation chapter 11, he calls him the destroyer. By tempting Adam and Eve to disobey God, he successfully brought the power of sin and death into God's good creation and man fell and so, this is how we are. He used death through sin to enslave and terrify us all. But Satan was not the only one who used death to his advantage. Jesus Christ said, two can play at this game, and so he did. By taking on flesh and blood and bearing Adam and Eve's curse, that is, the physical death on the cross and the spiritual death of being separated from the Father, the eternal equivalence of our hell, Jesus did what? He deceived the deceiver. He destroyed the destroyer. Look at the latter part of verse 14 again. Through death, he, speaking of Christ, destroyed the one who had the power of death. That is the devil. In other words, <clears throat> Jesus came and said, I'm going to rewrite the story. I'm going to do 
Genesis 3 over again as the second Adam, as the better Adam. He said, this time I'm going to come and I'm going to get it right. And that's what we know to be true on Christmas Day, that he was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit in Mary's womb, and therefore what? He came into this world just like Adam and Eve did. He came in sinless. So he didn't have original sin to deal with. But not only that, we know that he lived his 33 and a half years unlike Adam and Eve. He lived his entire life in perfect harmony with God's law and God's will. Every command every precept, every expectation that God had for man, Jesus exercised perfectly as what? As our second Adam, as our second head, and he did it in our place. He lived in perfect God-honoring submission to the Father. So by becoming a man and living a sinless life and then subjecting himself to the curse, to the physical and spiritual death on the cross, Jesus replayed Genesis chapter 3. He did a rewind and he went back there and he says, I'm going to do this story again. But not like Adam and Eve, I'm going to set it straight. And I will be the second Adam. And I will live the perfectly honoring life. And I will give my life for the ransom of many. And he did that. He had to do that to set us free from the power of sin and death. Through his death, my beloved, the necessity of his death, he grants to us forgiveness for our sins through faith and opens the door to eternal life that we might be with God again. The reformer Martin Luther put it like this. He said, by his wonderful wisdom, God compels the devil to bring about through death, the death of Christ, nothing less than eternal life. The destroyer was destroyed. The deceiver was deceived. What Satan thought, and he must have thought this, was what Satan thought was his ultimate victory on that day on Calvary when the Son of God was hanging in agony upon that tree was actually God's greatest victory for mankind. So when Jesus came, and ascended that cross as a man. Instead of death, he's able to offer freedom and life to sinners like us. The Apostle Paul made this so beautifully clear in Romans chapter 6, verse 10. Paul said, The death Jesus died, he died to sin once for all, so that we would no longer be what? Enslaved to sin. No longer enslaved, my beloved. But instead, Romans 6.22, we're set free from sin and we become now slaves of God, slaves of righteousness, which it says, Paul says, leads to sanctification and eternal life. Oh, that's much better. That's a much better story. That's a much better rewrite of the original, or I should say perverted cut. He offers life, he offers freedom through his death and resurrection. He had to come to set us free. But he he set us free not just from death, but did you notice in verse 15, he set us free also from the fear of death? Look at verse 15 with me. He came, he lived, he died to deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Now that word deliver is, is better translated set free. You know, we think of deliveries today, we think of UPS and we think of Amazon. He's not talking about something coming to your door. He's talking about you being set free not only from the bondage of sin and death, but from the fear of death itself. And he reveals here that Jesus Christ is the one who conquers that for us. 
He reveals Christ as what? As our champion, as our victor over death and the fear of death. Every, every aspect of death, Jesus conquers for us through his life, death, and resurrection. And so we know this to be what's called the champion motif or the Christus victor where Jesus comes and he, he becomes the champion for mankind. He fights in our behalf and he slays Satan and he slays sin and he slays death so that we can what? We can be afraid no more. So before the Bronze Age, it was not uncommon for kings to, to vacate the battlefield and instead of ushering thousands of troops on to wage war at a high cost, they would actually get a champion from each side and the champions would fight that battle out, and whoever would win would be victorious for their nation. And you say, oh, that sounds very familiar. That sounds like David and Goliath, and you are correct. That is a champion motif, a champion story. So instead of, as you probably heard it in Sunday school, that, that David was brave and he fought the giant, you be brave, you fight the giant. That's not what the story is about. The story is about the motif of Jesus Christ as our great conqueror. You see, Goliath, he was the giant Philistine, and he represented the enemies of God. He represented Satan, did he not? And then David marches out in that field, and he's what? He's a shepherd boy. He's the son of Jesse, and he represents God and the nation of Israel, and he's fighting for the freedom of God's people, just like who? Just like Christ. And just as David's victory over Goliath won for God's people freedom instead of slavery to the Philistines, Jesus Christ, the son of David's victory, over Satan, sin, and death itself has won for God's people freedom and what? And eternal life. Freedom from sin, freedom from the fear of sin. He is our ultimate champion. He is our eternal victor. When you think of the incarnation of Jesus Christ, think of your champion too. You see, we fear death precisely because it is contrary to the way we were created. You were not created to die. God created us to live for how long? Forever. To never taste death. He created us to enjoy His glory, to enjoy His honor, to be in His presence, to worship Him and to serve Him. But we know the story, Romans 5.12, sin entered the world through one man, that's Adam, the first Adam, and death through sin, and in this way death came to all people because all have sinned. And so we rightly fear death. If we have any sense to us, we fear death because de death ends everything, does it not? It certainly ends everything that is good. It brings finality to our bodies. It ends our careers. It, it destroys our education. It separates us from family and friends and purpose. It renders us unable to do what? To love, to create, to sing, to dance, to gather like this, to worship. No more Christmas dinners, no more Christmas presents. Death nullifies everything for everyone. In the Harry Potter series, J.K. Rowling created these characters. If you watch that series, read the books called Death Eaters. Remember the Death Eaters? And they are these ghost-like creatures that would come and they would be veiled in darkness and they would come and they would latch onto someone's mouth and they would literally suck the life out of somebody. They're really graphic pictures well, death in real life, it does the same thing, but I would argue infinitely worse. Infinitely worse because our sins don't just lead to physical death, 
As we know and believe the scriptures teach, it leads to eternal death. That is an eternal separation from God who is life. That means, my beloved, death for those who are not in Christ is no God, no worship of God, no community, no family, no friends, none of the blessings we enjoy here on earth that will be magnified in the eternal realm. None of them. The food that you love, the sunsets that you appreciate, the music that you listen to, the entertainment that you watch, all the good God-glorifying work we engage in does not happen apart from Christ. Only isolation, only darkness, only suffering, eternal death. Apart from Christ, man, if he had any sense, should fear death because death is the greatest enemy. But the good news of the gospel is that in Christ, everything changes. The second Adam rewrote the story. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, you often hear this when you attend a funeral or stand next to an open grave. In fact, I've never, I've never presided over a funeral or I have not read this at the gravesite. Paul writes correctly, Death is swallowed up in victory. Whose victory? The victory of Christ, our conqueror. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? Listen, the sting of death is sin, and the power of the sin is, power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. No fear of death, because death has no power over those in Christ. That's why Paul is able to say earnestly in Philippians 1.21 when he says, for me to live is Christ and to die is what? Say it. To die is gain. You say, wait a minute. You're saying physical death is better for you? Paul says, a million times better for me. How is that possible? For the Christian, death is not the end of anything. Death is the beginning of the fullness of God. For the Christian, death is eliminated by the death of Christ. And instead, when we leave these bodies of sin and death, we enter into the presence of God and the fullness of his glory. And that is your destined end. That's what you were made for. When I was a child, I, I had this strange fear of getting lost. And there were times when my mom would take the four of us. I had three brothers, four of us out grocery shopping. It was a nightmare. Um, <clears throat> it was really bad. We were really bad. And I would wander off. And at times I would wander off and I would get so far off that I couldn't find her again. And if you've ever been in that situation, you know what that feels like, that sense of, oh, I'm lost, I'm not going to get home, where am I going to sleep, what am I going to eat? It's all selfish, right? It's not about your parents. How are you going to survive? As I got a little bit older, I got a sense of direction, and I could wander away and know how to get back. And what happened to that fear of being lost? It went away. It went away. Before I came to know Christ, I was afraid of death. I was earnestly afraid of death. I didn't like talking about it. I didn't like it when my friends joked about it. I, I didn't like going to funerals. I hated standing next to an open grave because I knew at some point that would be my grave and they'd be standing around talking about me. And I knew at that point in time that I had no hope. I had no hope of salvation. But then, my beloved, Christ came to me and he redeemed me and he made me his 
And then I truly believed what Christ said to Martha in John chapter 11 when he said, whoever lives by believing in me will never die. He said to Martha, do you believe that? He said to me, do you believe that? And I said, I do. And so now I can tell you with great joy in my heart, I do not fear death. I do not fear death. I fear at times the way I might die, how I die. I do think about that. The older I get, the more I think about it. But death itself, I do not fear. And I do not fear that because Christ has been victorious for me. He has won over the power of Satan and sin and death. He has set me free from the power of death. He set me free from the fear of death so that I might what? Might walk in righteousness. That I might be bold in my faith. My beloved, listen. If, if you are no longer enslaved to sin, then you can, by the power of the Holy Spirit, you can live a holy life. You can live in accordance with God's will. Paul said that clearly, Romans 6.18. You've been set free from sin and have become slaves to what? Slaves to righteousness. That's supposed to be our lives in Christ. We're not supposed to surprise the world by living in accordance with God's word, by being holy as he is holy. That's the expectation of the Christian. And boldness should come as well, I mean, if the greatest thing we have to fear is death, and Christ overcame that for us, then the fear of death is overcome too. Right? He's conquered that for you. And that means we can live, we can serve, and we can sacrifice. Even what? Even to the point of death, because death no longer has power over us. No more fear, because there's no more power. In 2018, um, National Geographic did a documentary called Free Solo. If you haven't seen it, I highly recommend it. And it recounts the events of Alex Honnold's Free Solo, No Ropes, 75-foot ascent up El Capitan in Yosemite in four hours. It's a breathtaking documentary. It's terrifying, so terrifying, my wife would not watch it with me. She could not watch it. Understandably so, because we know that at any moment this man could fall and that would be the end of it. In fact, the photographers who were doing the documentary were terrified as they were watching him go up it because they thought we could be filming his imminent death. So scientists were so intrigued by this man's lack of fear, they decided to do some studies on his brain. And they found something fascinating. His amygdala, that location in the brain where we sense and respond to fear, his did not work quite right. In fact, in most cases, it didn't work at all. In the studies, they found that what, what, what images and sounds that terrified people, he had zero response to. There was no brain activity. He was a fearless man. Now, you may say, well, his, his fearlessness led him to foolishness. Maybe so. But it gives us an understanding of how he could do what gave most people nightmares to do. My beloved, listen, in becoming a man and dying for your sins, Jesus Christ conquered death and your fear of death. And he did it in a very similar fashion to Alex Hallman's brain. He permanently altered your brain and your heart. He permanently changed it. So those things that once terrified you as a non-believer can terrify you no more. Why? Because death has no power over you. He's made you or should have made you fearless to those things that you feared so much before you were saved by grace through faith. He enables you to die to yourself, which is a very hard thing to do, is it not? 
It's a, it's, a, it's a frightful thing to put your sins to death. He enables you, my beloved, to serve others and sacrifice for others instead of building your own kingdom and your own pleasures here. And you can do that because you have no fear of death. It means, my beloved, that we can, for the sake of Christ, we can proclaim the gospel. We can make disciples. We can advance the kingdom without fear. And even if there is fear, it won't stop us because Christ has overcome that for us. He's made a permanent alteration to your heart and mind. Are you like that? Do you have that sense of fearlessness because of what God has already done for you? If the worst thing that can happen to you is death itself, and you can say along with Paul, then it is gain. And if even death is not a problem for you as a Christian, then what can't you do for the kingdom? What sacrifices can you not make? What service can you not engage in? So Jesus became a man to exercise power over death. That is destroying the devil, the one who had power over death, and by delivering us, all of us, from the fear of death that led to lifelong slavery. Now before I get to my last point, my beloved, I want you to ask yourself, how fearful are you as a person? If you're in Christ, I mean, are you, are you an anxious-ridden, fearful individual that struggles getting through the day? Or do you realize that that the worst thing that can happen to you has been taken by Christ and therefore fear has no place for you. I pray that is the case. The author of Hebrews, he continues though, he gives us one more aspect of this. Not only did Christ have to become a man to overcome the power of Satan, sin, and death, but he had to become a man in order to grant us access back into the throne room. He had to become sin for us that sinners like us might get back in. Point number two, I pray you're, you're still with me. The way to eternal life. Look at verse 17. Therefore he, speaking of Jesus, had to be made like his brothers in every respect. So he had to be, just as it said in verse 14, partaking of flesh and blood, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, fully, truly human so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of his people. So he had to become a man. It wasn't optional. He had to become a man in order to intercede on behalf of whom? His brothers and sisters. So it wasn't just that he had to become the second Adam or our great conqueror, our Christus victor. He had to become a man that he become our Faithful and merciful high priest, doing what? Giving his life as a ransom, as a payment for our sins. You see, the priest's job, the priest's job then, and even so today, was to intercede before God on behalf of sinful man. Under the old covenant, we know that, that intercession took place through the sacrifice and spilling of blood of animals. Because God is holy, we know, Hebrews 12, 14, no one can see him unless what? We too are made holy. So Jesus became our merciful and faithful high priest by making a propitiation for the sins of the people. You say, that word, oh, every time I hear that, I go, propitiation, expiation. I don't know what it means. It's simple. Listen. Propitiation is to appease the wrath of God. He is a holy God, and he must punish justly every single sin. Propitiation for the sins of the people is Jesus dying to satisfy God's justice, 
to satisfy his holiness, to appease his wrath against whom? Against us. To take it away. And in so doing, he changes our legal standing. Not what we deserve. What we deserve is to be punished eternally. He changes that so that we become what? Forgiven sinners, saved by grace. So that we are pardoned, made legally righteous, no longer guilty in the eyes of God. So the just punishment that we deserved, he received, literally it says, in his flesh on the cross, enabling sinners like us through faith to get back in to where we so desperately want to be. Where we want to truly live eternally. All the joy, all the love, all the gift giving and the gift receiving. So much of what this day will be about for many of you. Enjoying family, enjoying love, enjoying a meal together. God says the eternal end in Christ is that forever and ever, but infinitely better. Jesus became a man so he could be in the flesh our merciful and faithful high priest and satisfied the wrath of God that we deserved so that we can get back in. 1 Peter 2.24, he himself bore our sins in his body, flesh and blood, on the cross, so that what? So that by his wounds you might be healed. So that we sinners might be healed. This is the fulfillment of the covenant that God made with Abraham. We saw this last week. How does God populate his throne room? How does he fill it, not just with the myriad of angels, but the multitudes that we saw last week? How do we get the white robes to stand in the presence of God and worship and enjoy God forever? It's through the propitiation, the sins, of, the sins that Christ paid for that we might have access back to God. That's how he did it. His blood instead of yours. His body instead of your body. If you were kidnapped and you were held for ransom, and let's say the ransom was a million dollars, you're worth a pretty penny. Your family gets notice of this and your brother does everything, sells his house, sells his cars, take out a loan, he gets a million dollars and he goes and he pays the kidnapper a million dollars. He sets you free. And you're very thankful to your brother. Your brother could not have done this had he not been born. Your brother could not have done this had he not taken on the flesh and had enough money to come and rescue, to ransom you. He had to exist. If on your way home from school you fall asleep at the wheel and you accidentally kill another person in a head-on collision, you're arrested and you are found guilty of manslaughter and sentenced to 10 years in prison. And the judge says that your sister's come forward and your sister has been willing to take your place in prison. To 10 years she will take to set you free. The judge agrees to that. Your sister could not do this, could not serve your term in the flesh unless she had been born and had flesh too. She had to exist. My beloved, Jesus had to become a man in order to pay the ransom for our sins with his own physical life. Jesus had to become a man in order to serve our sentence, our eternal sentence with his own life. He had to become a man so that he could experience in full 
the suffering and death we rightly deserved in order for us to be saved. And that's why the author can say, look at verse 18, because he, Jesus himself, has suffered when tempted. He is able to help those who are being tempted. At the very beginning of our Lord's ministry, right out of the gate, if you remember after his baptism, he was ushered out in the desert and after fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, he was, sent, he was tempted by whom? He was tempted by the devil. The same devil that tempted Adam and Eve in the garden and led to their failure, to their sin. Jesus was tempted by the same devil, but he did not capitulate. He won over Satan. Every temptation Jesus faced during his three and a half years of ministry failed, listen, to cause him to sin. He was mocked. He was ridiculed. Remember who he is. This is the Son of God. This is the eternal God-man, the Savior of mankind. He was mocked. He was ridiculed. He's cast out of places where he came and did nothing but what? But not, He did nothing but love and heal and feed. He was used by the masses. He was lied about by the religious elite. He was plotted against by his own people, by the Jews. He was falsely accused, as you know. He was illegally arrested, he was unjustly tried, and he was sentenced to die, and die he did on a wretched cross. He was spit on, beaten, deserted by family and friends, suffering beyond measure, tempted like no one before since to what? To sin. And you say, what would that sin be? To stop the mission, to give up on sinful man, to say, enough's enough. I'm no longer going to be the high priest. I'm no longer going to be the victor. Enough with these people. I'm going back to heaven. But he did not do that. His greatest temptation in his final hours, we know this well, on the night that he was betrayed, he's in the garden, and he says to his disciples, my soul is very sorrowful, even to the point of what? To the point of death. He is so deeply grieved over what was in store Going a little farther, we're told in Matthew chapter 26, going a little further, he fell on his face and he prayed saying this, my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. My beloved, if there was another way, God would have said yes to that prayer. He'd have vacated the cross, he'd have brought his son back home, and he made another way. But the father's silence was the answer, was it not? The Son of God had to become a man in order for even a single sinner to be saved, let alone multitudes. The cup that Jesus asked to pass from him was the cup of God's eternal wrath, his holiness being exercised on the sins of man. That cup that you and I, apart from Christ, will drink. His greatest suffering on the cross was not physical, although wretched it was, it was spiritual. It was the Father coming to him for the first time, not as his heavenly Father, but as his eternal judge. Remember what Christ cried out on the cross? My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? During that three hours of darkness on the cross, Jesus Christ suffered our virtual hell, the complete and total suffering you and I deserve for our sins. Total and forever separation from the love and joy of God the Father. Only darkness, only the weeping and gnashing of teeth, truly the death to be feared, he experienced in full on the cross. That was the propitiation. 
And yet, what did he do? He stayed on the cross. He stayed on the cross. He himself suffered. He himself suffered when tempted, and he didn't get down. And so the author can say, look again at verse 18, because he himself has suffered when tempted his whole life, his whole ministry, his own death, pure suffering, he is able to help those who are being tempted. You say, well, how, how does his suffering help me? How does it enable me or equip me? Now, most commentators, when they approach this passage, they look back at verse 17 and they said, he was made like his brothers in every respect. He became fully human. And so he can identify with our suffering. And there's certainly truth to that, but I I think there's a lot more power in verse 18 than just identification of suffering. In verse 18, the word help, in the Greek, it's a military term. And it means to respond to a critical need. It literally means to run to meet the need. It's an SOS. It's a 911 call. 17 years ago, most of you remember, my father suffered a, a heart attack in the home. My brother called 911. And by God's grace, the paramedics were there in minutes. And by God's grace, he's with us today. They responded to that 911 call, that immediate need for help. Now, verse 18 should mean something very different for you if that is true. I don't know about you, but when I'm, when I'm going through suffering, when I'm going through light suffering, the thought of Christ suffering on my behalf and identifying with me as a human being who suffers, that's helpful when the suffering is light. But when the suffering's really heavy, when it's super dark, I'm talking about that teeth-clenching suffering. The idea that Christ suffered for me is not all that much help. I need something better than that. And I bet you do in those moments of temptation too. You need, I need, real power, immediate intervention. Someone who not only knows our suffering and temptation, but someone who can come to us in that moment and help us. Listen, my beloved, Jesus is that person. Verse 18 is such an extraordinary verse. Our merciful and faithful high priest seated upon the throne, he intercedes on our behalf every moment of every day. And he certainly does when we call upon him. So anytime, well here's a great truth, you ready? Anytime you need help in any way, certainly when you're being tempted to sin or to turn away from God, you can call a 911 distress call to your Lord, and you're going to get something more than a sympathetic ear. I know how you feel. I've been there. You're going to get real gospel power. Real power. Real power to not only endure unspeakable suffering, but to become what? To become a conqueror like Christ. I like how Paul said that we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. More than conquerors. Hyper conquerors. Christ became a man to be our champion so that in him we can be champions too in Christ. In their suffering, the Jewish Christians addressed here, they wanted to turn back to the old ways. They were being persecuted specifically because they had put their faith in Christ. And so they were going back to Judaism, going back to the law. When we suffer, we do the same thing, don't we? When we suffer, we turn to our idols. We turn back to maybe some of our old religious practices. Those things we do, we think, if I do these things, then maybe God will take the suffering away. And we play this little exchange game with God. 
if we turn to Christ instead, according to verse 18, and we make those 911 calls daily, and they probably need to be made daily for most of us, we're told here that as our high priest, he will intervene. He will keep you from turning away from God and turning to your sin. He will strengthen you so that you can what? You can fight the good fight of faith. He'll strengthen you to that end. He will enable you, listen, he will enable you to pursue the righteousness that we're supposed to pursue because we're no longer enslaved to sin. He enables us to do that. He enables us to be bold. You say, Pastor, I'm such a coward with my faith. I'm a coward. I'm gonna be sitting at dinner tonight with all my family and there are people there at that table who do not know Christ and I won't say a word. I'll be dead silent. I'm afraid. Call on Christ. Ask Christ to give you the strength to speak the truth in love, to be bold in your faith. He's there for you. He wants to strengthen you to that end. He's your merciful and faithful high priest. He promises to give you the love and the grace that you need every moment of every day to do his will. So Jesus had to become a man so he could be our second Adam, be our conqueror, and set us free from the power of Satan, sin, and death. He had to. It was necessary for us if we are to be saved. He had to become a man in order to atone for our sins, in order for us to get back into the throne room of God. He had to become a man to suffer and die as he did so that he can be to us the strength and power that we need to live the bold, righteous, other-centered, sacrificial life that God has called and equipped us to be to live for him. I'm gonna close. What a tremendous Christmas gift to mankind. What a gift. Freedom from sin and death. Freedom from the fear of death. Access back into the presence of God. Having Christ and the power of Christ daily to live this life in a manner that's pleasing to God? There is no greater gift, my beloved. So I'll ask you this last question. Have you opened it? Have you opened the gift? If there are any gifts under your tree, I doubt there'll be a single one left open tonight. It's Christmas Day. Gifts are meant to be opened. Have you opened the gift by faith, have you turned from your sin and your rebellion against God and have you put your faith and your hope and your trust in the second Adam, in the great conqueror, in the merciful and faithful high priest, Jesus Christ? Have you done that? If not, then I want to petition you today to see the depth of your sin and the judgment awaits and to call upon Christ to save you to confess to God, to turn to God and open the gift of eternal life. This day, what a great Christmas gift. Imagine you can say, Christmas Day 2022, I came to know the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Death has no power over me. In an epistle to Diognetus, it was a document written probably as early as 130 AD. Early church fathers were talking about 
the gift of Christ at Christmas. I'm going to read it and I'll pray. God himself gave his own son as a ransom for us. The Holy One for the lawless. The guiltless for the guilty. The just for the unjust. The incorruptible for the corruptible. The immortal for the mortal. For what else but his righteousness could have covered our sins? In whom was it possible for us, the lawless and ungodly, to be justified except in the Son of God alone? And then he writes this, listen. Oh, the sweet exchange. Oh, the incomprehensible work of God. Oh, the unexpected blessings that the sinfulness of many should be hidden in one righteous man while the righteousness of one should justify the many. Oh, I pray that you know Christ in his incarnation and resurrection this morning. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, for those of us who believe in the incarnation of your Son, I pray that you would show us this day the absolute necessity of it. That if any of us have any hope of being set free from the power of sin, of being given access back into your throne room, that we are fully dependent upon the the Son of God who became a man, who lived a sinless life, who died a sinner's death, that we might be pardoned forever. If there are any of us here, Father, who question that or doubt it or do not know it, I pray that you would, by your Spirit, impress it upon us deeply that we might, this Christmas day, rightly celebrate the coming of your Son. Not just to be born, but to die so that we, sinners destined for death, might have life. Do that, I pray, for my brothers and sisters, for this church, But ultimately, Father, I pray you would do it for your glory. In Christ's name, amen. Thanks for listening. Christ Community Church is a Reformed Baptist church in San Jose, California. If you'd like more information on our church, please visit lovinglord.org. From there, you can find service times, weekly gatherings, our sermon archive, and other resources. For video content, please visit our YouTube channel, You can also follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Thank you again for listening.